0: As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup Squim and pished, And to the Docey Wallops Where so many times i fished From Brynn to the Boca From Lamy to La Push and from the lordly sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Samamish, Suquamish to Quillasine, the climate is so friendly. It's a land that's evergreen.
1: Hello and welcome to the history of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C. And thank you for joining me today for episode 14, Everett's Ghost Ship. Most visitors to the 10th Street jetty at the port of Everett probably don't even notice the dilapidated old wooden ship sitting there under a roofed dry dock. Many of the planks have been pulled away from the wooden pegs that fastened them from the ship's ribs, and there is a lot of rot in the remaining woodwork but it was while traveling aboard this very ship that the world-renowned author Robert Louis Stevenson got his inspiration for his stories about the South Seas. Stevenson is best remembered for his classics The Master of Ballantrae, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and of course, my favorite, Treasure Island. The influence of Treasure Island on popular perceptions of pirates is enormous, including treasure maps marked with an X, tropical islands, and one-legged seamen carrying parrots on their shoulders. And what self-respecting pirate isn't in possession of a blood-stained map where X marks the spot? Stevenson even wrote the ditty that eventually became the song A Pirate's Life for Me. Every good story involves pirates, right? But he wrote many other darker works, including the South Sea stories, which were full of villains, murder, and the unforgiving nature of life at sea. The Equator was built in Benicia, California in 1888 by the Turner Shipyards. The Equator was a 76-ton, 81-foot-long, two-masted pygmy schooner. The Equator was designed and built by Matthew Turner, who is often nicknamed Matthew Schooner and is often called the greatest ship designer of his day. Matthew Turner was born in Geneva, Ohio on the 17th of June, 1825. He was the fourth child of George Turner and Emily Atkins. Matthew's father owned a sawmill on the shores of Lake Erie. His knack for shipbuilding came to him at a young age. When he was 14 years old, he watched as his father and a crew constructed their first ship, the Sloop Geneva. And later, he watched the construction of the Felina Mills. These two ships were intended to haul lumber and building stone on the Great Lakes, and soon proved to be a great inspiration for young Matthew's shipbuilding prowess. He built the schooner G.R. Roberts and launched it when he was 23 years old in 1848 and he would go on to captain the ship that same year. 1848 proved to be a big year in the life of young Mr. Matthew Turner. After he became the captain of the ship he built and launched, he married a beautiful woman by the name of Amanda Jackson. Unfortunately though, Amanda passed away giving birth to the couple's first child. Unfortunately though, Amanda passed away giving birth to the couple's first child. Adding another blow to Matthew, the child did not survive the birth either. How heartbreaking and gut-punching this must have been for the young captain. The next year, Matthew happened upon some exciting news while making his way down the Mississippi River when he finally got the news of the gold rush out in California. It took him a few months to get his affairs in order, and then he headed off to California to strike it rich. Unlike most of the men that struck out in this attempt, Mr. Matthew Turner actually succeeded and made a small fortune in Calaveras County. He would eventually find his way back to being a captain of a ship and wound up running lumber from the Mendocino coast to San Francisco. During his career as a ship's captain, he would actually be recognized for his heroism and services rendered by Queen Victoria as well as the Norwegian government. Queen Victoria gave him a gold mountain spyglass for his troubles and the Norwegians presented him with a silver service medal for his rescue of a Norwegian vessel that was foundering near Honolulu. He would return his sights to his teenage interest of shipbuilding when in 1868 he built his first ocean-going vessel, the Brig Nautilus. He actually designed and built the ship in a way that was almost totally opposite from how other shipbuilders designed them at the time for this run. The Nautilus was long and sharp on its forward side and was lean and full on its waterline aft. Skeptics quickly panned the ship and predicted that it would not fare well in the rough Pacific Ocean, diving and pitching into the sea making for a very wet and wild ride. But they were wrong, and the Nautilus proved to be quite successful in its runs between Tahiti and San Francisco. Matthew would eventually establish a shipyard with his brother Horatio near Hunter's Point in the early 1870s, This first shipyard was met with great success and soon Matthew was searching for a larger location to expand. In 1883, he went into business with his brother and another gentleman and formed the Matthew Turner Shipyard in Benicia. This shipyard proved to be very productive and during its lifetime produced over 154 wooden fifty-four wooden-hulled ships. The famed Henry Hall of the Hall Brothers' shipyard in Port Blakely was a huge fan of Matthew Turner's and wrote several times of the form and function of his superbly built vessels. Matthew Turner, during his 37-year period of building and designing ships from 1868 to 1905, reportedly built 228 ships. This was more than any other American shipbuilder during the age of sailing vessels. He also probably has the distinction of building more vessels for foreign contracts than any other American since the Revolution. Matthew was also a charter member of the San Francisco Yacht Club and produced some of the fastest yachts in the world at the time. His yachts would often win the famous races held by the San Francisco Yacht Club. After a life of hard work and dedication to his trade, Matthew Turner was pretty much left crippled by the time 1904 rolled around though he was still personally overseeing his work at the shipyard in 1906 when the San Francisco earthquake struck, proving to be a huge boon for his business. Due to being suddenly swamped, Mr. Matthew Turner retired. After fighting a short illness at his Oakland home, he passed away at the age of 83 on the 10th of February, 1909. Sorry I got a little sidetracked there in talking about Matthew Turner, but I felt his life was fascinating and deserved to be told for a few minutes in the show. And besides, when would I get another chance to talk about this legendary American shipbuilder? I'll get back to the story at hand, but I can't guarantee there won't be any more diversions. This story is full of interesting little side notes that I've enjoyed exploring further in this episode. The Equator was originally a copra trader and mail ship plying the South Pacific. Copra is coconut meat that has been traditionally grated and then ground then boiled in water to extract the coconut oil. It was traditionally used by Pacific Island cultures and became a valuable commercial product for merchants in the South Seas and in South Asia beginning in the 1860s. Nowadays, the process of extracting coconut oil is performed by crushing the copra to produce coconut oil. The 30% byproduct of this process is referred to as copra cake or copra meal. This remaining cake like byproduct contains nearly 25% protein but has so much dietary fiber that it cannot be eaten by humans. Instead, it is fed to cows or oxen or whatever ruminants that are nearby. Anyways, see how easy it is for me to get sidetracked? After working in the copra and mail trade, the equator then worked as an Arctic whaler and then went on to work as a Puget Sound tug, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me back this up a little bit. The equator powered across the Pacific over the years using sails, then steam, then gasoline, and then was finally powered by diesel, which means she bore witness to numerous changes that affected the very DNA of the maritime industry in the Victorian era. Many Turner-built ships went on to set speed records in their classes, his design for schooners were so successful and well-designed that many of them were able to transition from sailing sails to propeller-driven travel quite rapidly and very easily. The Equator is only one of a handful of ships left in the world that was built by Matthew Turner, and it was a lucky vessel indeed. The Equator sailed for the South Sea's trading network soon after she was built in early 1889. In March of that same year, a devastating cyclone swept through the South Pacific, wreaking havoc wherever it went and claiming numerous lives along the way. Six naval warships would be destroyed by the cyclone, and hundreds of people of multiple nationalities from around the world would be killed. Events ashore in Samoa had led to massive strife and upheaval in the Pacific nations and related colonies. Both the United States and Imperial Germany saw this as an excellent potential opportunity to expand their holdings in the area through their various forms of gunboat diplomacy. In order to be ready, should such an opportunity arise, both nations had dispatched squadrons to the area to investigate the situation and act accordingly. A British ship was also actually present, ostensibly to observe the actions of the other nations during the Samoan upheavals. During the days preceding the cyclone of March 15th, there were increasing signs of visible and impending danger. March was cyclone season in this area, and Samoa had been hit by a cyclone just three years previously, which the captains of the ships heard about from local people, especially as the weather began to change and the atmospheric pressure began to fall. Signs of very bad things to come indeed. The captains were experienced Pacific seamen, as were many members of their crews, and they all saw the approaching signs of the impending danger. They figured that the only chance they had of riding out the 100-mile-per-hour winds was to take to the open sea and hope for the best. When the cyclone struck, the result was catastrophic. The local people had taken themselves to safety well before the storm struck, but the ships in the bay only began to evacuate at the very last minute and thus were crowding towards the entrance to the bay when the cyclone hit. The only ships that survived in the eye of the storm were the British warship Calliope and the Equator. After the storm, the Equator continued on her course, eventually picking up Robert Louis Stevenson along the way. Stevenson had suffered from weak lungs, which was probably due to tuberculosis, and he nearly died from it several times on his journey. I actually have an episode talking about TB and the response from Seattle in dealing with it, but it won't be out for a while. I'll talk more about that at the end of the show, though. Robert Louis Stevenson had traveled the world looking for a place with the right climate for his health. I won't get too into depth here into the life of Stevenson because that is an entire episode on its own. Stevenson was born in Scotland in 1850 to a leading lighthouse engineer by the name of Thomas and his young wife, Margaret Isabella. Robert's grandfather and uncles all worked in the design and building of lighthouses, so they all thought that young Robert would follow in their footsteps since the tradition ran deep in the family. Other deep familial roots were in the ownership of land and being generally well-regarded people, usually referred to as gentry, but again, I'm getting sidetracked. Earlier in 1889, Stevenson had arrived in Hawaii aboard the luxury yacht Casco. He stayed in the islands for several months with his wife, Fanny Vandegrift Osborne, along with his mother and his stepchildren. Stevenson and his wife Fanny generally led a nomadic life, and Stevenson often wrote some of his best work while they were traveling. During his stay, Stevenson became friends with Hawaii's King David Kalakaua. When he decided to move on from Hawaii, Stevenson booked passage for himself and his stepson Lloyd Osborne on the equator for a six-month voyage as it went about trading coconuts with the inhabitants of the Gilbert Islands. This journey was the basis for numerous articles and essays that Stevenson wrote and were collected in 1889 and titled In the South Pacific Seas. King Kalakaua actually came on board the schooner equator to see the Stevensons off and wished the party fair winds and a safe voyage. It's rumored that the king's spirit never really departed from the equator. Stevenson mixed freely with the crew as the ship went from port to port and, more than likely, gave some of these men tuberculosis, which would probably later prove to be a near death sentence for these working men. He wrote several ballads and novels based on the stories and characters he encountered on the voyage. One sailor's tale inspired him to co write The Wrecker with his stepson, Lloyd Osborne, in 1892. The Wrecker is a tale of insurance fraud, murder, and danger on the high seas with many elements of intrigue that would apply today. The Wrecker has been described as a sprawling, episodic adventure story, a comedy of brash manners, and something of a detective mystery. It revolves around the abandoned wreck of the Flying Scud at Midway. Clues are found in a stamp collection and are then used to track down the missing crew and solve the mystery. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I actually read it for the first time while prepping for this episode, and it was a pretty darn fun read. It is only in the very last chapter of the book that the different story elements become linked. Stevenson described it as a South Sea yarn concerning a very strange and defective plan that was accepted with open eyes for what seemed countervailing opportunities offered. The book sold well, but reviews were mixed with a New York Times reviewer going so far as to say, The Wrecker is a kind of blank cartridge romance with a big explosion, which raises a dust, and if anything really has happened, it escapes you in the flash and the cloud of smoke. Stevenson's time on the equator seems to have been pretty memorable for the author, and he references the ship several times in other works and letters outside of the wrecker stevenson eventually wound up settling in samoa where he continued to write and lobby on behalf of the native peoples robert Louis stevenson passed away in samoa of a cerebral hemorrhage on the 3rd of december 1894 while attempting to open a bottle of wine what a way to go it is rumored his soul still haunts the equator to this very day if you believe in that sort of thing. Myself, I'm a somewhat skeptical believer. I've had several experiences I can't explain, so I usually tend to believe more than I tend to be skeptical. The equator's celebrity provenance apparently did not impress its later owners, who quickly went about totally changing the schooner when they bought it. The vessel was shorn of its two-masted schooner rigging, was subjected to an ungainly cabin superstructure, and was also outfitted with an engine and a propeller. The equator then changed her years-long route, spending years hauling logs and cargoes of fish between California and the Evergreen State. It once even saw use as a wire drag ship vessel for the United States Geodetic Survey. But in 1923, the equator was stranded on the Quileute River Bar and filled with water. The ship was refloated by filling the hold with empty oil drums and she would be towed to Seattle for extensive repairs. The vessel would eventually be patched up, refloated, and put back to work. The equator even received a new diesel power plant in 1940. This aging vessel would then be employed for many years by the Puget Sound Tug and Barge Company. In 1956, the equator would be abandoned on the Snohomish River jetty. Its deckhouse, fittings, and nearly all of its machinery would be removed, leaving only the hull, which itself was showing considerable wear. It was in this lowly and abandoned state that the equator would wallow in for the next decade. In 1967, a local dentist named Eldon Schalk salvaged the abandoned vessel, recognizing the obvious historical significance the vessel played in some of the writings of Robert Louis Stevenson. Mr. Shalk paid for it to be hauled ashore and dry docked at the 14th Street Fisherman's Boat Shop in Everett. Mr. Shalk then led the charge in organizing a preservation group called the Equator Foundation to restore this unique vessel. The Equator Foundation struggled from the get-go, but did achieve a significant accomplishment in 1972. That year, the organization successfully lobbied to get the old schooner on the National Register of Historic Places. This is even more significant to note here because this made the equator the first such site in Snohomish County to ever be listed on the NRHP. The equator has also been added to the Washington State Historic Places Registry. The Equator Foundation was dedicated to restoring the Equator to its former glory as a seagoing vessel fit to carry Robert Louis Stevenson's to his literary ports of call. But then, nothing really happened. Well, almost nothing. The deteriorating boat would be moved to its current location at 10th from where it had stayed at Marina Village sometime in the late 1980s. The nonprofit Equator Foundation disbanded after Schalk's untimely death in a plane crash in 1992. Thankfully, the Equator sits on land that was purchased with federal funds under an arrangement that restricts its use to recreational activities. So, there's no chance of condos or storage units or any other ugly monstrosity displacing the old schooner. The boat was then left to slowly fall to pieces, apparently forgotten by time. And that's where our story abruptly leaves off, or does it. Several people have reported seeing balls of light floating over the decks of the ship. Others have seen strangers on board who vanished as suddenly as they had appeared. Workers that were doing work on the equator reported several times that some of their tools had suddenly disappeared, only to reappear in really odd places. Skeptics suggested that people were merely just seeing things, and that the workers had simply misplaced their tools. These skeptics also claimed that the globes of light were just St. Elmo's fire, a natural effect of static electricity in storms, but they failed to provide any actual proof. And it's too bad that the reports of the orbs did not coincide with storms. They were seen in clear weather. In an effort to find out what was happening, two psychics came aboard and held a seance, during which observers reported seeing two glowing lights appearing over the stern of the ship, finally hovering slightly above the psychics. Let me just state here that I don't really believe in the whole psychic thing. I think it's baloney and a total sham, but that's just me. It makes for a good story, though. The psychics also said that the glowing lights were the spirits of Stevenson and King Calicoea, Stevenson represented an industrialized and so-called cultured Europe that King Kalakaua tried to bring to Hawaii in his reign. Both men adamantly believed in the existence of an afterlife, and the psychics said the two of them had met again in a friendship that far outlasted their deaths. What do you think of all this? If you're so inclined, shoot me an email, I'd be curious to hear your opinion on this matter. And it is October, after all. Everyone loves a good ghost story this time of year. I'm more than happy to oblige. Although work was done on the equator to stop the effects of earlier and extensive decay, it was way too late for the craft to ever be considered to be seaworthy again. Eventually, the port moved it to a dry dock. Today, it sits in the shed on the Everett waterfront next to a plaque noting its historic significance, even as it falls into a terrible disrepair. It's the last known surviving hull of its time period, and if you're ever in Everett and have a few minutes to spare, I highly recommend checking it out. In November 2017, the back end of the old boat collapsed and hasn't yet been fixed, and probably will never be fixed, sadly. According to one credible local historian, this collapse signaled the beginning of the end for the equator. Before its backbone broke, the vessel's remains were documented by marine archaeologists Katie Custer and Peter Badzikovsky, then of Texas A&M University. The scientists visited Everett several times to take extensive photos and obtain samples of its timbers. Unfortunately, the vessel seems now to be damaged beyond any sort of repair, and any attempt to restore it would be less like setting a bone and more like major reconstructive surgery. We're all familiar with the ship of Theseus. If you eventually replace all of the parts of the ship, is it still the same ship? The schooner that was once capable of sailing across the Pacific, able to brave the frigid waters of the Arctic, now slowly splinters into dust, stripped of its engine and masts. The equator is nothing but a shell of its former formidable self. If the equator never becomes anything more than its current state of semi-wreckage, Perhaps the boat's spirit can rest easy, knowing that it once reached its full potential on the high seas. Will the equator ever assume its former glory? Will it return to at least a close facsimile of its original form? The equator can be seen by visiting 10th Street and Craftsman Way in Everett. On display are photographs of Stevenson and his part in the equator's history. Several unsuccessful attempts had been made over the years to raise money to restore the equator to its original schooner configuration and build an interpretive center for its history. It was a storied boat once, and as long as it's in the Evergreen State, its story will continue to be told. As Robert Louis Stevenson himself once said, To be what we are and to become what we are capable of becoming is the only end of life. If you're enjoying the show, Please leave a 5 star review and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. I wanted to talk a little bit here about the show at the end of the episode. I made the announcement over a month ago that episodes would be releasing weekly instead of every 2 weeks. Before I made that change, episodes had no problem reaching 25 downloads. There were even a few that got more than that. Since reconfiguring the show and putting out more content more often... The downloads have surprisingly and dramatically dipped, which kind of makes no sense to me since every podcaster and podcasting community I reach out to for advice always tells me that they release once a week and that I should too and that my audience would grow, but it's seeming to do the opposite actually. just seems like it's even more work for less listens now. There's been several episodes that even failed to get to 12 downloads in their first week, which was bizarre because before when I was doing an episode every two weeks, there's no problem with them getting to 20 downloads in a week period. It's a bit disheartening to say the least and makes me wonder if I should just go back to the old format and only put out episodes every other week. At least nobody has felt the need to leave one-star reviews for the podcast without any further explanation for a while, so that's always a positive thing. Sources for this episode include A Haunted Tour Guide to the Pacific Northwest by Jeff Davis Ghost Hunter's Guide to Seattle and the Puget Sound Ghost Hunter's Guide to Seattle and Puget Sound The Apia Hurricane Entry at Wikipedia The Seattle Times HeraldNet.com WeirdWashington Britannica.com Biography.com Live in Everett and Revisiting Washington Thank you for listening to episode 14 Everett's Ghost Ship, episode 15, will be released next week. A special thank you goes out to Alan Hurst for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact pod at gmail.com. That email address can also be found in the episode description, in addition to the link to buy me a coffee, which offers you, the listener, the opportunities to support the show and to keep it going. One-time and monthly donations will go towards research material to assist me in continuing to put out these episodes. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone.
0: There's peace on the Skakomish, on the Queeds and on the whole. There's Kamon the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow, a land that nature loves so much she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck, and Moclips and Copalis. Where the razor clams abound A little bit of heaven Is a shock on Puget Sound A little bit of heaven Is a shock on Puget Sound